0: The following is a sermon from Redemption Bible Chapel in London, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit redemptionlondon.ca. It is a pleasure to be back with you. I think I was here Labor Day weekend. Something to do with the holidays. Now it's Thanksgiving weekend. But good to be here. I want to begin by saying something I I never thought I would hear myself say. I had a wonderful drive on the 401 this morning. (laughs) Um, the traffic was light, and the sky was a brilliant blue, and there were patches of frost here and there, and the colors just coming into their prime, aren't they, this time of year, and a mist lying low in the valleys. I saw three deer, and the Timmy's dark roast was particularly tasty this morning. It's the small things. But uh, tangible reminders that God is good and does good. And it's great to be back with you. I have the privilege of uh, launching a new sermon series today. I think you're aware of this. I hope you're aware of this in the book of Philippians. And so I'm excited about this, and I anticipate great things as we turn together to. God's Word, and as Pastor Norm and I work our way through this book, uh, depending upon the Holy Spirit to instruct us and incline our hearts to God's truth, I anticipate and expect uh, great things. So I invite you now to turn with me to this portion of God's Word, the book of Philippians chapter 1, and as you turn there, a map is going to come up, I think, on the screen behind me. I trust it's there. And uh, on this map, I don't know if you can make out the words or not. Can you make them out way back there? I'll try to help you out. Uh, Start way over on this side of the map, and a place called Syria, modern-day Syria. And it's not up there yet, is it? Well, maybe it'll come. There it is. This side of the map, Syria. Can you see the city of Antioch? Uh, That's where the Apostle Paul finds himself centuries ago. He has completed his first missionary journey and he is now residing in the city of Antioch and he decides that the time has come to embark on a second missionary journey. Uh, You might recall that he and Barnabas have a little falling out and so Barnabas takes Mark. They go off their way. Paul takes Silas and they head off together over land follow the red line as Paul and Silas make their way into what is known as modern-day Turkey. Back in Paul's day, Asia Minor, a province within the Roman Empire. And so Paul and Silas, they're traveling by foot over land. They arrive in more or less central Turkey, the city of Lystra, and there Paul meets a young man who would become one of his most faithful co-laborers, Timothy. And from there they head on, Paul and Silas, and they continue to move, keep moving on the map, way over to the left. They end up on the western shore of Turkey in the city of Troas. And there Paul receives a vision. And in this vision, he hears this voice, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they get on a boat, they get on a ship, And they head over. They cross the Aegean Sea, and they arrive in the city of Philippi, the first time Paul has been in Europe. Philippi, named after Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. And there in Philippi, Paul begins to preach the gospel. He's making known the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a woman named Lydia, who is Paul's first European convert. She hears the word, and the Lord opens her eyes and opens her ears and opens her heart to receive the gospel. She's converted and her family. And a short time after, as Paul and Silas are ministering in the city and preaching the word, there is this young girl who starts tagging along, following behind them, and she's demon-possessed, and she's crying out, these are the messengers of God Most High. What did God Most High mean to that audience? Undoubtedly, Zeus. So she was creating all sorts of confusion and problems. This goes on for days. Paul's had enough. He turns, casts out the demon from this little girl. Well, she has owners. She's a slave. And uh, these owners use this little girl to fortune -telling, telling, divination, all sorts of things. And she was quite profitable to them. Well, they realize they've lost their source of income. They cause a ruckus in the city of Philippi. And when it all settles down and the dust clears, Paul and Silas find themselves in prison, having been beaten. And there they are, bruised and bloodied and battered in this prison cell in the darkness of night, singing and giving thanks to the Lord. Suddenly there's an earthquake. And the whole prison sh- shakes, and their chains are loosed, the prison doors are opened. The jailer, realizing what has happened, assumes that all the prisoners have escaped. He draws his sword, he is about to kill himself. And suddenly he hears this voice from deep within the prison cell. "We're all here. We're all here." And the Philippian jailer immediately cries out, "What must I do to be saved?" what must i do to be saved and paul's answer one statement one sentence believe on the lord jesus christ and you will be saved he saved that night he and his household they're baptized shortly after paul leaves that little church consisting very least of lydia and her household the philippian jailer and his household and undoubtedly others And Paul and Silas leave the city of Philippi. They move deeper into Macedonia, deeper down into Greece, and then eventually catch a ship all the way back to Jerusalem, then to Antioch, thereby completing his second missionary journey. We know he visits the city of Philippi on at least one more occasion, possibly two more occasions during his third missionary journey. But we don't have any details We have no idea what transpires there. But at the end of his third missionary journey, Paul is in Jerusalem. And many of you know the story. He's arrested. And as he's brought before the tribunal, he appeals to Caesar. He knows he's not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. And so he appeals to Caesar, and off he goes then to Rome. Under guard by ship overland, makes his way to Rome, and there he is in jail awaiting his trial. The Christians back in Philippi hear of this, and so they send one of their own, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. They send him to Rome to minister to Paul while he's in prison. They send him to encourage Paul. They send him with a financial gift to support. Paul. And Paul, having received Epaphroditus, he then writes this letter back to the church at Philippi. And he has three purposes, three goals in writing. The first is to thank them. Thank you very much for your gift. So many have forgotten me, but you haven't forgotten me. And you've come alongside me in my ministry of the gospel, and you're fellowshipping and participating with me in the proclamation of the gospel. I thank you for this gift. And he writes them, secondly, to assure them, assure them, that is, of Epaphroditus' health. Because once Epaphroditus had arrived in Rome, he became ill, deathly ill. Word had snuck back, seeped back to the believers in Philippi. They were concerned. They were perplexed. And so the second reason Paul writes this letter is just to assure them he's okay. He's going to be okay. And the third reason he writes this epistle is to encourage them. It is to exhort them to live like Christ. I think the key verse in the entire epistle is right there in chapter 1. is verse 20 or verse 21. Is it not? To live, for me to live, is Christ. To die is gain. And so he writes this letter with this third intent of exhorting them in the faith. That is the context. That is what is transpired. And we have now before us Paul's letter, the inspired word of God. And I invite you to follow along as I read for us the first two verses in chapter one Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to isolate but one thought in these verses. It is the most important thought in these two verses. I dare say it is perhaps the most important thought in the entire epistle. It is that phrase right in the middle of verse 1 where Paul addresses his audience to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Turn over for a moment, just a moment, to the end of the letter chapter 4 and just note briefly how Paul signs off how he bids farewell in this letter the last three verses verse 21 then of chapter 4 greet every saint in Christ Jesus the brothers who are with me greet you all the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Did you note the similarity there? He begins back in chapter 1, verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He ends chapter 4, verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This thought is central to the letter. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And as we read from chapter 1 through to chapter 4, we will discover that on at least a dozen additional instances, Paul is going to use again that phrase, in Christ Jesus. In the Lord. In Christ. In him. This is a central thought in his understanding and it is something he wants to get across and convey to the church at Philippi, their identity in Christ. And so this is what we're going to give our attention to today. In the words of Handley Mool, to grasp this deep yet simple fact What it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus, to grasp this deep yet simple fact is to pour a new light into the heart and a new power into the life. And so that's what we're going to see today. And I want to unpack this truth by pointing us in three directions. Why is this so important? Why is it of utmost importance that we understand, grasp, embrace, internalize what it means to be in Christ Jesus? Three reasons. Here's reason number one it means our salvation is positional. To be in Christ Jesus, To be a saint in Christ Jesus is of such importance because it means, firstly, it means that our salvation is positional. Take a brief look with me at chapter 3. We could go to a number of places. I just want to give you a little inkling as to this truth. Look at chapter 3 and at what Paul says in verse 8. Indeed... I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice carefully what he says at the outset of verse 9. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so we are saints in Christ Jesus. That means as Christians, I'm speaking of believers, we are one with Christ. He has taken hold of us by the Holy Spirit. We have taken hold of him through faith. Therefore, in God's reckoning, we are one with Christ in an indissoluble union. That is our position. That is who we are. This is extremely significant because it means, as a Christian, because I am one with Christ, it means that Christ reckons to me Christ's dying and rising again. Did you hear that? God reckons Christ's crucifixion and resurrection to me as if I had performed them in my own person. I haven't performed them in my own person in actuality. But because I am one with Christ, as far as God is concerned, Christ's death is my death. Christ's resurrection is my resurrection. That means in Christ, the penalty for my sin has been paid in full. But it gets even better. It's not just that I am one with him, and therefore God reckons Christ's death and resurrection to me, thereby wiping away the penalty for my sin. It also means that because I'm one with him, God reckons Christ's living to me. He considers Christ's perfect obedience. He considers Christ's perfect life. He considers Christ's righteousness as something that I have actually performed in my own person. Because I am one with Christ. I haven't actually performed it, but as far as God is concerned, I'm one with Christ. And what Christ has done This is wonder of wonders, folks. I've done it as far as God is concerned. Oh, here we come to the heartbeat of the gospel, do we not? Here we come to the heartbeat of the good news of salvation, that through faith I become one with Christ. And because I'm one with Christ, God reckons to me Christ living, Christ dying, and Christ rising again. This is my Position. Oh, Martin Luther, he labored long and hard when it came to impressing upon his congregants, those in his church. We're back into the fifteenth century now. Oh, he, he ministered, expended tremendous amount of energy and effort trying to get this across to the members of his church. What it means to be one with Christ. And what it means, as Paul says there in Philippians 3, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. It's not about me. That comes from the law or my own efforts, what I do. But that, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And on one particular morning as he was preaching before his church, Martin Luther said, look, look, my friends, you think of those dunghills out there. They all knew what he was talking about. It was a farming community, and they knew they would collect the refuse from their animals on their farms, and they would collect that refuse in piles, and at certain times during the year, they would spread that manure on their fields as fertilizer, and Luther said, look, there are all those dunghills out there, and they're ugly, and they are smelly. As a matter of fact, they're downright disgusting, but uh, November's coming. December is coming. And you think what's going to happen on that morning when you wake up and during the night 4 inches of snow has fallen. And you're going to emerge from your home and there what are you going to see? Oh, just this pristine, perfect, white, spotless blanket of snow covering what from view? All those dung hills. And then Luther informed the members of his church, my friend, you are those dunghills. That is you. That is me. And that blanket of snow is the righteousness of Christ. We are not saved because of anything in us. It has absolutely nothing to do with us. We are saved by an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that comes from outside of us. And through faith, we become one with Christ. And because we're one with Christ, God considers us to be in Christ. And because we're in Christ, what is Christ becomes ours. And he declares us to be righteous. Just in his sight. Understand this, please, and be careful with it. Positionally, positionally, you will never be more righteous than you are now. Nor will I. Because we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Oh, maybe you need to hear that, friend. I'm getting excited because I believe there probably is someone here who needs to hear that. You're sitting there thinking, yourself, well, no, I need to scrub myself clean. Good luck with that, friend. Good luck with that. Well, I've got a list of 101 things I think I just need to do, and then, then maybe God will look my way favorably. Oh, no, 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 friend. Burn the list, please. You think to yourself, I've just got to do this. I've just got to st- stop doing that. That there's something about me. There's something in me. There's something intrinsic to me. There's something I've done. There's something that sets me apart, and this is what somehow makes God look my way, earns God's favor, and makes me a Christian. no, no. No, no. It's by faith and faith alone. We look outside of ourselves. Get your eyes off yourself. And we look to the Lord Jesus. And we're made one with him through faith. And God now reckons to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. Imagine that day. I don't think it's going to play out like this, quite like this, but maybe a little bit like this. There you are on the judgment day. You and me, there we are standing before the throne. I don't think it's going to play out like this, but God asks us, and so, uh, why should I welcome you? Why should I receive you? Uh, Why should I permit you entrance into my glory? And uh, friend, here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to start fumbling around, kicking the dirt and saying, well, I did the best I could. It's not going to cut it. Well, I'm certainly not as bad as that guy back in the line four back. I knew what he got up to, and I'm certainly not that bad. So you got to find sneak me in the back door at least. It's not going to cut it. Well, I went to church every Sunday. I did this. I did that. I lived a pretty clean life. I was a good husband. I was a faithful wife. All this. No, 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 no my friend. You know, you know, you don't even want to say this on the judgment day. Well, I believe. I'm not even sure that's what we want to say on the judgment day. Here's what you want to say on the judgment day, and God asking that question, why should I let you into my glory? It's simply this. You know, you shouldn't. But I'm with him. That's what we want to say. I'm with him. Jesus. As a matter of fact, I'm in him. As a matter of fact, you consider me to be one with him. Therefore, as far as you're concerned, his living, his dying, his rising again are mine. And that's my only claim. It is my position in Christ Jesus. But this truth, union with Christ, is important for a second reason. Here it is. It means our salvation is relational. Relational. Turn over with me to chapter 4. And look just for a moment at verse Five, let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone, writes Paul. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ jesus and so this doctrine of what it means to be one with christ in christ union with christ is important yes because it reminds us that our salvation is positional secondly it is important because it reminds us that our salvation is relational we have peace with god there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what in christ jesus we have peace with God but not just that Paul's pointing to something different here in chapter 4 he's reminding us right there in verse 7 that we have what the peace of God which surpasses all understanding and it guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus we know that the Lord is at hand yes we know we have peace with God he's no longer a terrifying judge but he's a loving Heavenly Father and now this loving Heavenly Father Who excels in greatness is our God, our loving Heavenly Father. And therefore, we know that whatever might be happening in life, whatever we might be going through, whatever might be transpiring, we know that this God is on our side. He rules the universe fully and completely. From the smallest particles dancing in the beam of sunlight to the greatest stars burning in the distant galaxies above. Oh, hear this, please. Our God is not merely mighty. He is almighty. Our God has never encountered difficulty, let alone impossibility. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And He is our God. We are in relationship with Him. He is our loving, heavenly Father, and therefore we enjoy the peace of God. I'm not sure we fully appreciate this. As a matter of fact, I know we, myself included, do not fully appreciate this, what this means to be in relationship with Almighty God and to know this God as our loving Heavenly Father. You know, I think there are a number of reasons for that. Perhaps one of the most telling is this. I think many of us have this idea that God loves us begrudgingly, almost as an afterthought. He doesn't love us begrudgingly, he loves us lavishly. You know, this idea of loving us begrudgingly, it's almost like I, I, I hesitate to bring this up, lest it was a very painful experience for any of us. But you think back, you think back to the playground growing up, and when it came time to choose teams. Do you remember that? Uh, we, we, had a, we had a very civilized way of doing things. I remember playing street hockey. One of the big kids, Jeff, would always pull his toque down over his eyes, and we would each throw our sticks in a big pile there in front of him, and so he would then just grab one stick, throw it that way, one stick that way, one stick that way, and you just went in whichever direction your stick was flying. But off, Lynn, that wasn't the way it was, was it? Two captains. And what, do we, what would they do? Choose teams. Who goes first? The strongest and the fastest. Who goes last? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Sadly, I often think it's all begrudgingly. Well, you take, you take that one, you take that one, and I'll take what's his face. And that's the way it was. And sadly, I often think that's almost how we view God's love for us that he loves us begrudgingly. No, my friends, in Christ Jesus, he loves us lavishly. He loves us lavishly because the object of his love is actually Christ with whom are we one? Christ. Therefore, the love with which he loves us is the love with which he loves his Son. His Son is his beloved one, which makes us what in Christ? His beloved. He loves us lavishly oh we need to hear this some of us here probably need to hear this and hear it clearly and succinctly far too often we judge God's love for us on the basis of our circumstances what kind of a day we're having or how we're feeling And because we judge His love for us or measure His love for us on the basis of our current circumstances, at times we rob ourselves of this joy which flows from knowing Him as our loving Heavenly Father, no matter what our circumstances. We do this, don't we? I mean, just think for a moment. Just go through some of the individuals in Scripture. You think, for example, of Joseph. Did God love Joseph? Oh, yes, he did. Have you read the story of Joseph recently? Ay, ay, ay. Trouble after trouble after trouble. Did God love Naomi? Yes, he did. She buried a husband and two sons and was left destitute. Did God love Jonathan? Now, there's a story that has irked me ever since I was a young boy. Why did God pass over Jonathan and make David king? Jonathan would have been a wonderful king. He was a soldier. He was faithful, loyal, brave. He feared God. And he died forgotten on a lonely hill at the edge of a Philistine sword. Did God love him? Did God love Paul? Shipwrecks, imprisonments, beatings, hardship on top of hardship. Oh, my friend, we do not judge the measure of God's love for us according to our circumstances. The measure of God's love for us is not, let me repeat it, our circumstances, but Christ's cross. That is the measure of God's love. That is the declaration of God's love. That is the full manifestation of God's love. When he gave up his beloved son on Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin, and now having made us one with him, he loves us with the same love with which he loves the son. Alan Gardner an Englishman, we're back into the mid-1800s. He was actually a naval officer during the War of 1812. Spent a lot of time in Newfoundland. And uh, after he was decommissioned following that war, he became a missionary. And Alan Gardner went off to South Africa and ministered there for several years and uh, saw a number of people saved. And then he and a few friends targeted the most southern tip of South America. And they were making their way there and they were shipwrecked in uh, an island close to Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire, shipwrecked. And uh, soon their provisions ran out, left with no food, and each of them, including Alan Gardner, slowly starved uh, to death. A missionary, a servant of the Lord. Months later, a search party found them and found the corpses, I think it was seven or eight men, scattered on the beach. And near Alan Gardner was his journal. And the, I think it was the last entry in his journal was simply this. I am overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness. Really. I aspire to that. I'm not sure I'm anywhere near that. I am overwhelmed. With a sense of God's goodness. Why? Because God's goodness, God's love, is not measured by your circumstances or my circumstances. It is measured by Christ's cross. And we are being preserved for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. And we enjoy now peace with God and the peace. Of God, because we are in Christ and therefore we know we are the object of God's unchangeable love. But there's a third reason. A third reason why this truth is so important. Number one, it means our salvation is positional. Number two, it means our salvation is relational. Number three, it means our salvation is transformational. Go all the way back to chapter one. Again, we could go to any number of places. Chapter 1 will suffice. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God and so positionally it is true we are in Christ Jesus and therefore we are clothed with his righteousness and we are declared righteous we are declared just in the sight of God that's justification but another fruit of our union with Christ is sanctification And because we are one with Him, the Spirit of God now dwells in us, and the Spirit of God is reproducing in us the very nature of Christ, and therefore we are being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so our union with Christ is a motivation to change. Because the doctrine of sanctification really isn't that complex. It's simply this. God, in effect, says to us, look, remember who you are. You're a child of God. You're a member of my household. I love you with the love with which I love my son. And as far as I'm concerned, his living, his dying, his rising, they are yours. And I welcome you, and I receive you, and you are righteous in my sight. And so you have died, you have been buried, you have risen again, and you are now a child of God. And then he adds simply this, now act like it. That's the doctrine of sanctification. It is remembering who we are in Christ Jesus. And as we remember who we are in Christ, we find the motivation to put to death our sin. Not just the motivation, but the ability to change. Because the Holy Spirit now reproduces in us the perfect dispositional drives of Christ's human nature at our motivational level center in texas they have trees known as live oaks lots of trees but uh, live oaks it's it's an interesting species because in the fall it does not drop its leaves and so they're called live oaks because during the winter months they stay green and they do not drop their leaves until what spring Why? because they require the new buds and the new leaves to start to grow to push out the old ones That's sanctification the Spirit of God now dwells within we're one with Christ in his death burial and resurrection God commands us to act like it and he's given us the Holy Spirit to do just that there are only maybe you need to hear this maybe you need to be reminded this friend there are only three reasons we disobey only three reasons First reason is this, a lack of knowledge. We don't know what God wants. Well, we read the Bible and we discover what God wants. Problem solved. Reason number two, we lack the skill to do what God wants. Well, we read the Bible and we discover how we are to obey him and put things into practice. Problem solved. Reason number three, we obey simply this. We lack the will. We don't want to obey. And far too often we hide behind the excuse, oh, I'm not able, oh, I can't do this, oh, it's too difficult. Yes, in the flesh it is, but we've been born again by the Holy Spirit. We are knit together with Christ. And the Spirit Himself is now producing new dispositional drives within us. And my friends, if you do not lack knowledge and if you do not lack skill, the only reason you still disobey is because you what? Lack the will, the desire. And that calls simply for what? Repentance. Good old-fashioned repentance. Where we acknowledge our sin. And we forsake our sin. And we know that as we do so and as we confess it. Our loving Heavenly Father who has received us in Christ, He forgives us our sin and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Oh, this is the third reason why this doctrine is so important. It means we we, we are transformed. It is the key to living a transformed life. As daily we live in the reality of our identity in Christ. And so as we reflect on this great truth, we are saints in Christ Jesus. We recognize its importance. We take to heart its importance because of what it means for our salvation positionally, uh, what it means for our salvation relationally, and what it means for our salvation transformationally. You know, when you think on this, and it really is the key to Christian living. We discover that in this great truth, union with Christ, we have perhaps the most important truth we have to offer to others. Now what do we say to the woman whose husband has abandoned her? What do we say to the corporate executive who's consumed with his work? What do we say to the young woman whose father left when she was four years old? What do we say to the young man who thinks his life is all about the next high? What do we say to the criminal who will spend the rest of his life behind bars? What do we say to the young woman entrapped in the euphoria of cutting? What do we say to the neighbor? and knows the characters on her favorite TV show better than her own children? What do we say to the man who is consumed with pornography? What do we say to the young woman engaged in the sex trade? What do we say to the teenager contemplating suicide? What do we say to the middle-aged man consumed with self-image, his perfect wife, his perfect kids, his perfect car, his perfect hair? What do we say to the woman consumed with what people think about her? We speak plainly, and we begin with this. Our sin ought to alarm us, and our sin is a far greater problem than our suffering. We move on to this. God sent his son to bear the penalty for our sin in his body on the cross. We proceed to this. We become one with Jesus Christ through faith. We declare this. God welcomes all who come to him through Christ. And we declare this, God now loves us in Christ Jesus. So dear, so very dear to God. More dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves the Son, such is his love to me. Why should I ever fretful be, since such as God is mine? He watches o'er me night and day and tells me mine is thine. This is our identity. It isn't built on our performance, but Christ's merit. It isn't based on something we've done, but on what Christ has done. In a word, as Christians, we are saints in Christ Jesus. Our loving Heavenly Father above We pray that by your spirit you might take these truths and impress them deep down within our hearts. May they be implanted within, from which issue forth the wellsprings of life. For any unbelievers in our midst, we do intercede on their behalf. And pray that this might indeed be the day of salvation when the scales fall from off their eyes and they behold your glory in a wondrous Savior, Jesus Christ. For your people gathered here, we pray that this day we might be encouraged and strengthened in the faith. May this be for our good. And may it resound for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.